Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Welcome to Law and the Family. I'm your host, Aaron Weems. I'm an attorney with Fox Rothschild in our Bluebell office. And today I'm speaking with Professor Randy Lee, who's a professor of constitutional law, professional responsibility, towards some various writing and advocacy courses at Widener University's Commonwealth School of Law. He's a Butler University graduate and Harvard University School of Law graduate. We're also speaking with Elizabeth Billies, who's an attorney with the Shell Bartle and Dooley Law Offices in Lansdale, Montgomery County. Liz practices in all areas of family law, including pre and post nuptial agreements, divorce, equitable distribution, custody, and support. Today, we're speaking with them because they are both appearing on the panel of the upcoming PBA Family Law Winter Meetings at the Hershey Hotel over January 13th and 15th. And we're speaking with them today about the effect of the Dobbs decision and how constitutional law may affect your family law case. Welcome to the podcast, both of you, and thank you for speaking with us about this important topic. Well, Aaron, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. All right. First and foremost, Professor Lee, you're the con law professor. So why don't you first give us some background on the Dobbs case and why you and Liz feel like it's important for family law attorneys to pay attention to this particular case? Well, as you and Liz, Aaron, were were talking about examining witnesses and, you know, you have your agenda and then the minute you start, you walk the whole thing back. If I can kind of just follow up on that lead and, and sort of walk the, the thing back a little bit, I really would like to even start out on why family law attorneys care about constitutional law. And then we could kind of roll into Dobbs. But I think it's kind of a sneaky dynamic. And Liz and I have been talking about this. And you may not realize, I don't know if family laws realize how sophisticated a level that they do constitutional law. In fact, I, I really think that you guys do constitutional law on a more sophisticated level than the Supreme Court does, right? Because For you, it's not just what the Constitution says or what it means, right? But for you, constitutional law is how the Constitution is lived well, right? So let me give you an example of that, right? And and sort of the panel, the group of people that, that we're working on with this, we were just talking about First Amendment rights. Do First Amendment, does First Amendment have anything to do with family law attorneys, right? And you have this client who comes in and says, I want to post this thing about my ex or my soon to be ex or, you know, my ex deserves to have everybody in the world know about this. Right. And for you, it's not just a legal question. Does this fall within First Amendment protection? Right. But for you, you really got to say to the client, just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean you have to use that right or doesn't mean you can use it irresponsibly without consequences. So it's like, not only do you guys have to see what choices the Constitution leaves to people, but you have to be able to help the client see how to live those choices in a way that they can actually live with, right? It's it's like Liz having the sign behind her. And if we were doing this on video, everybody would see the sign and go, wow, what a great sign. 
But Liz got to sign up, you know, work hard and be nice to people. And sometimes you got to tell the client, I know you don't want to be nice, but if you want to get what you want, you got to choose to be nice, right? And so, so I think, you know, when, when you're navigating a lot of these family law dynamics, the Constitution sets out frameworks for people to live within, but you got to not only show the people what the frameworks are that they're allowed to live within, but then you got to help them to make choices about how to live with well within those choices. You know, let me just jump in real fast, because when you talk about First Amendment rights, one of the things I think about is when the Supreme Court is dealing with the, or, or the appellate courts are dealing with it, we're looking at balancing tests in a way. And, you know, and Liz, I think I think we probably both have had the shared experience where when the family court are dealing with issues, they're oftentimes doing balancing tests of rights versus outcomes or, you know, in custody. When we when we kind of talk about where these First Amendment rights, we probably see them the most is restricting what people can say to the world or to their kids about about the other parent. Liz, what what's your take on that? What's your what's your perspective on how that First Amendment issue really plays out in a practical sense. And this is exactly why when we were, the programming committee was coming up with topics, why we wanted to do this topic, because it does come up. And my mantra has been, this comes up more than you think. And so how many times have we had the client who, yes, they have the right to call the other parent a name or to say something to them or to say something to the children about them? Or how about we even have the the issue of, reviews on someone's professional page, which it really is, they, you know, really is more of a custody. It's an underlying custody issue, but they're posting reviews about the ex-spouse or the ex-spouse's new significant other. All of those things, they have the right to say all of that under the First Amendment. However, is that in the best interest of the child? That is the standard for custody. So you're right. It is a balancing test, you know, and it's, it's telling client like, yes, you can say that, However, these are the consequences. This is how I see the court dealing with that. They're never going to tell you you can't say X, Y, and Z in terms of trying to infringe on your right. They're going to say you can't say that because by doing so, you're not acting in the best interests of your children or you're somehow interfering with the other person's custodial rights, depending on what you're saying and what you're doing. So that's where it really is. And what to Randy's point, and Randy and I have had a lot of conversations about that in preparing for the panel for the winter meeting is, you know, how can we translate this very lofty, I think, as lawyers, this very lofty idea of constitutional law and the First Amendment and Dobbs and all of that and really get it down to, okay, how does this actually affect our clients on a daily basis? And I would say this is probably one of the number one ways that it does. And so it's it's us trying to walk that fine line of like not saying you can't do that client, but saying you can't do that because this is how it's going to affect your custody case. I'm not saying you don't have the right to. I'm saying don't do it because it hurts your kids and it hurts you in your case. You have the freedom of speech, but you are not free from the consequences of your exactly, exactly, hundred percent. And I think, I mean, I know as family law lawyers, we were having those conversations with clients every single day in various contexts. And Aaron, I think that even gets to a, a, a dynamic that that we all on the panel really are excited about. The thing I keep hearing about is that the family law section is a very engaged and eager section at these programs. And I think that's that's really, really important. And that's something that we want to see kind of manifested in the program, that it's not this sort of passive thing where, yeah, you mentioned I teach constitutional law. That doesn't mean 
that I am, quote unquote, the expert on constitutional law. And this is really a chance for the section to talk about, you know, what are the issues that are coming down in constitutional law? How is what the courts are doing in the constitutional area affecting our practice? And what does it mean to our clients? And, you know, I think that's that's a really, really important avenue to have open. I think sometimes we get into the CLE dynamic now on Zoom where, you know, your CLE responsibility or your CLE involvement is, you know, press the button at the right time so we know you haven't died during the CLE from CLE overdose. But really, you know, the idea behind CLE is for the bar to come together and really you got some really creative, engaged people who are in very, very tough settings what's everybody seeing and how's everybody responding to it? And and how do we come up with, with some good answers, you know, when we bring all those minds together? I think one thing that's kind of interesting for me is that, you know, as the three of us are sitting here, I think sometimes the practicing bar loses track of the fact that they, in fact, are law teachers, you know, that that your teaching function is as important as my teaching function is, right? The, the rules of professional conduct define you guys as citizens with a special responsibility for the quality of justice. And people are going to come to you I and mean, people have come to you, you know, and as soon as they know you're a lawyer, is Dobbs good or bad, you know, and you really frame how lay people understand whether that opinion is good or bad or understand what courts are supposed to do when they look at these opinions. You know, you, you look at Dobbs and, and I've, I've come across a lot of people talking about or critiquing the Dobbs opinion in popular culture. And I would say 99.9% of those critiques are simply based on the outcome of the case. You know, this is a good outcome or this is a bad outcome. And it's it's certainly okay for lay people to have that conversation. But for us as lawyers, the conversation that we have to have is what's the court supposed to be doing? And is that what they are doing here? And did they, did they do it in a way where they actually came to the appropriate answer? You know, I may think the right to abortion is the greatest right in the world, right? But if that right isn't actually present in the language of the Constitution, then as a lawyer, I've got to pursue that right through the political process rather than through the legal process. Or I may think the right to life, same thing, is the most important right in the world. But if that's not in the language of the Constitution, then I have to pursue that through the political process, not through litigation. And so then we get to the question, well, what is it that the courts are supposed to be doing? And is that what they did in Dobbs? So let, let's talk a little bit about that, because I think it is helpful, because, I've, you know, unless you miss the news, the past, you know, past eight or nine months, Dobbs was the recent Supreme Court case dealing with abortion rights. And you're right, it's both a, it's a, both a political issue, both a legal issue, it's a social issue. There's a lot of ramifications to it, but why don't you break it down for us from the perspective of what the Supreme Court was doing when it was making that decision? Like what what was the standard that it was looking at? And and give, give us a little insight as to how you saw the path to where they they ended up with that outcome, whether you agree with it or not, but how they arrived at that outcome. Aaron, that is that is a great question. 
And let me give you the long, short answer, and then we could decide if we want to get into the long, long answer as well. But the, the long, short answer is Dobbs really comes, you mentioned earlier that the Constitution has these tests, and there are different kinds of tests and balancing tests, whatever. The test that decides whether something is a fundamental right has two parts, right? We first, we ask, is this something that is deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions? And the second part, is this something that is essential to ordered liberty, right? Deeply rooted, essential to ordered liberty. In between those two prongs, you got to have a connector. And some people insist that the connector is and, A-N-D. And some people insist that the connector is or, right? Which makes a huge difference. Because if the connector is and, you can't have a fundamental right if you haven't had it in the past. If it's not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, there's no fundamental right. We don't get to the essential to ordered liberty question. If it's an or, then you can pitch the deeply rooted thing. It doesn't matter as long as it's essential to ordered liberty. And what Dobbs really comes down to is the majority of the court saying this is an and. And then you have other people on the other side saying, no, it's an or, right? And, and the amazing thing about this is that the 14th Amendment due process clause is over 150 years old. If it's 150 years old, how do we as lawyers at this point not know whether it's an and or an or? I mean, to me, that's a huge question. I mean, that's, that to me is a, is a huge dereliction of duty. We're promoting this dynamic that we are into precedent and authority and we're accountable to the tests. And we got nine people on the Supreme Court and they don't even know what the test is in, 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 as a group, right? So, so really, I think that's, the, that's really sort of, for me, one of the big questions that Dobbs raises is how did we get to the point that we don't even know what the test is? And how do we figure, now that we've acknowledged we don't know what the test is, how do we get beyond that, right? How do we reach the point where we're all in agreement? If you want to know whether something's a fundamental right, how do you go about figuring it out? And so now here we are with, with Dobbs having been issued. And is this something that we look at as being a template for, for what have been characterized as really privacy issues? Is, are, we, are we going to be looking at Dobbs as that path to dealing with other forms of personal privacy rights? Oh, I think, you know, and, and Liz, I don't, I don't mean to, to chubby you out because again, I mean, but I think this question of, of is it an and or is it an or is not going away. I mean, that, that question has been running around for a century. So, so this doesn't put it to bed. This just says that on the day they decided Dobbs, it was an and. Two years from now, it may be an or again. Tomorrow, it may be an or again, right? And I think there's a host of really important family law kinds of issues that are out there that are just waiting, that, that we're going to have to figure out. You know, we were talking about, you know, Liz, I, the, the group we were talking about, there's a, a, of all things, a rent control apartment case in New York, right? And, and the dynamic that we have here is two gay men got married and they decided they wanted to live apart. 
So one has one apartment, the other has another apartment. One of the guys in this marriage who's in a, who's living in a rent control apartment starts living with another guy. He's still married to the first guy. He's living with another guy. At some point he dies and the guy he's living with wants the rent controlled apartment. He can't give it unless he's in, he can't get that rent controlled apartment unless he's in a relationship with the, the tenant that's basically the equivalent of marriage, right? And the New York court looks at this and says, why does marriage have to be between two people, right? Why can't, if, if we take Planned Parent versus Casey on its face that everyone has a right to define their own concept of existence, why can't they define this equivalent relationship as involving three people as opposed to two, right? And, and that dynamic, the sort of the, the marriage as, as a polygamous dynamic is out there in other jurisdictions as well, right? And, and it's, it's being debated in the law reviews and everything. So I, I think you're going to start to see that issue surfacing. There's a lot of push right now in the legal academy for legalization of things like prostitution, that there's a right to prostitution, which I think has a family law dynamic to it. I think it's going to affect the family law practice, depending on on how that goes out. Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts right now is looking at a euthanasia case, right to die. And again, I don't know if, if you're strictly matrimonial law, then that probably doesn't affect your practice. But I think if you're dealing with families generally, that's going to profoundly affect you know, the nature of your practice, where that goes, how that gets decided. So, so I think there's a lot of stuff on the horizon that the constitution can come down to. And again, one of the dynamics, and and I'm very interested in, in you guys' thoughts on this, you know, as we look to the Supreme court to resolve these issues, it's fascinating to me that there's nobody on the Supreme court that has ever practiced family law with for any length of time. I mean, maybe they've occasionally encountered some case in their dabblings or in their, you know, corporate practice or whatever. But, you know, so we have, we have nine people deciding the contours of family law and the constitutional regulation of the family. And not only have none of them ever practiced family law full time, but the system, the culture of selecting people to the Supreme Court really is designed to exclude people who've practiced family law, you know, and, and I think we kind of need to look at that and just say, you know what, if you're going to be in these issues, federal courts, then you really need to be bringing people into the decision-making process who have expertise in these areas. You know, just out of curiosity, and I don't know if you know this, but you know, so many of the Supreme Court justices had extensive, you know, appellate experience, whether it's on the bench or or possibly as practicing attorneys. But I'm not sure how many were practicing lawyers, trial trial lawyers. Do you have any sense as to as to the group's background and and you know, in good old fashioned trial work? Aaron, that, that's an interesting question. On a couple of, I mean, first of all, I think that they have all had, they've all been in practice right? For, for some period of time. A number of them have been litigators. A lot of them are U.S. attorneys. Um, I think Justice Jackson was a federal public defender. But again, there's being a litigator and being a litigator, right? I mean, so you can be a litigator and have never seen a courtroom. And so there is that dynamic. The thing that I find fascinating is 
my sense is that all nine of them have done a clerkship. None of them have done a state court clerkship. Mm, like, which is where you're going to see family law. Exactly. Right? All of them have been a judge, right? Well, I'm not, I, I guess Kagan was solicitor general. I'm not sure that, but, it, but anyway, I mean, they, they bopped around the federal court system. There's nobody there who was ever a state court judge. You know, again, that's where you're going to see family law issues coming up. And I, I think that we've just gotten this, this very narrow vision of the track you need to be on if you're going to be on the Supreme Court. And, and if the Supreme Court is really going to be reviewing this really broad brush of kinds of cases, particularly family law cases, I think maybe we need to rethink what avenues are available for people to arrive on the Supreme Court. And, and it wasn't always like this. Justice Brennan came out of the state court system. I believe that Justice O'Connor had experience as a state court judge. So it's, it's kind of a new dynamic that, that the sense is that you got to do your time on the circuit court and you got to do your time in the solicitor general's office. And you, you know, got to have that degree from Yale or Harvard. I, I think you know, that's a great point. I mean, if you look, not only do all of these people, right, you got one from Notre Dame and everybody else is like Harvard and Yale, right? But if you back up a step and see where they went to college, they all went to very elite colleges. I mean, and if that's the only pathway to the United States Supreme Court or even to the, the federal circuit courts, the day that you take the SAT test, you decide whether you will ever be on the Supreme Court. That can't be the way the system works. Right. Or if you, I mean, think about this one. You know, you take your LSAT, you do well, you know, you do really well, and your local state, you know, your local state law school, Pitt, you know, Penn State, you know, whatever it is, Temple, offers you full tuition scholarship. And this Ivy League school says, you can come here for $60,000 a year. If I opt to go for free, I have opted to take myself out of the running for the United States Supreme Court. You know, again, that can't be how the system works. And what 18-year-old or actually 22-year-old is making those calculated decisions? And do we want to rely on the decision-making of a 22-year-old to ultimately make up our Supreme Court? Well, that's exactly. You know? or, or even if you're making a decision, I mean, you look at it and you go, you know what? That's a pretty responsible for decision for somebody to say, I don't want to be $200,000 in debt when I graduate from law school. So we go, that's a really responsible decision. It's just one that disqualifies you from the United States Supreme Court. Right. I can't help but think that I, I think probably uniformly most of the judges on most of the justices on the Supreme Court, probably at 22, that was a, that was a career goal. Yeah. I think a lot, I think there are certain positions that you don't just sort of uh, fall into or, or, or you yeah. know, with, I mean, it's, it's a 30 year plan though. Right. I mean, it's a, it's, it's the ultimate winnowing of, of, of options. And, but I think what you're, I think to your point is what we're seeing is that as the, as the court is currently configured, there's somewhat of a, of a pathway that that is being established through mm -hmm. the appellate clerkships, the federal, the the federal, the kind of the federal system as as you described it, which seems to be where we're placing most of our Supreme Court justices. And we've even talked about the politics of it all because right. that's a you know a completely different beast of really kind of I guess your the, the light shining on you during the right administration and at the right point in your career. I mean, there's so many so many factors that have to go into it. 
That's a great point. I just read this this terrifying article today. The reason it's terrifying is it's it was it was in a a, a liberal publication, and I, I just I only mention that because it's somebody who you would think would be very supportive of Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor, right? Because they're the more liberal members of the court. And this publication was calling for them to resign. And the reason they were calling for them to resign was because you've got a Democratic Senate, you've got a Democratic president, the political configuration for 2024 is is not real good for the Democrats to hold on to the Senate, or maybe they lose the presidents, but the stars are properly aligned. You two people are in your 60s, you know? We got to get you out so we can get some 40 year old on the Supreme Court so that our ideology is protected for the next hundred years. And, and you look at that and you just go, this is just crazy, right? I mean, it should not work like this. If you've got somebody who's doing the job, we should be able to let them leave them alone to just do the job. And we shouldn't have to worry about the political machinations. If we're asking people to resign in the prime of their legal career so that the political stars can be lined up and we can get the right person in behind them, then constitutional law does not work properly. And, you know, and, and to kind of sort of link this back to, to the family court side of things, I mean, what we're talking about is that there are issues that we're going to be encountering. And, and we, we, talked, we mentioned due process, but I think we should spend a little time delving into that a little bit. But at the end of the day, we are kind of, we're, we're viewing Dobbs and what will end up being the outcome of similar privacy cases. They're going to be viewed for, through a lens of really justices that haven't necessarily experienced the type of legal issues on the minutia level that we have. And we need to be prepared for having to take what is, is a, could be an esoteric view or analysis of, of a con law issue, and we're going to have to apply it in a, in a very specific and personal way. And that's exactly why we wanted to do this panel. It wasn't to have a conversation about right to life or right to choice. It wasn't to have a com- political conversation about Dobbs, just to make that clear for everybody. That's not the intention of this panel. That's not what we're going to be focusing on. It was the the footnote about the right to privacy and the other decision, you know, the related concepts, you know, uh, same-sex marriage, third-party custody rights. Uh, interracial marriage. It was those things where where the programming committee and then our panel specifically was like, we got to talk about this stuff because this is what our clients are living every day. Therefore, we're living it every day. And we got to be able to, as Randy said, be our client's teacher about what they, you know, about their rights and what their rights and balancing it with what is good in their best interest of them and their children. But also, you know, just like the example from the New York case that Randy brought up, like, who thinks that a rent-controlled apartment case and maybe an estate issue is going to become a Supreme Court case? Like any one of our cases, you know, we spend so much time talking about pick up and drop off times and who has who for, you know, speaking of the holidays, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But like that small issue of like, I just want to stay in my apartment, which sounds so basic and such an everyday item becomes a Supreme Court issue. And so therefore those kinds of same everyday items can become constitutional law issues in our own family law cases. I often say that the the heaviest constitutional law issue that I think we encounter is the termination of parental rights. Yep. And the most fundamental of rights to be a parent. Yep. And yep. we have a process in place and it's very much rooted in due process principles mm-hmm. about how we go about 
taking away someone's right to be a parent. And I think uh, that issue, those types of things, I think that's where we always have to kind of keep an eye on the fact that we really are parrying these constitutional law ideas and considerations. And there is a reason why, like there's a reason why the code is, is written the way it is to deal with some of these things. Like they are, they have been shaped through con law principles. Anything you guys want to to wrap up with and just touch on before we let you go? Well, if I could just jump in, because I think this is, and again, this this may be mythology or it may be true. I think it's true because the lawyer who did it told me, so I'm trusting them. But <laughs> where the the right to same-sex couple adoption in Pennsylvania really came from, right? And it's not that there was this moment where this court said, okay, we're going to let a same-sex couple adopt, or we're going to pass a law that says same-sex couple can adopt, right? I mean, same-sex couples were adopting for a long time before that happened. It's just, if you were handling the adoption, you came to the moment where you said, whose name goes on the adoption form? Okay, which of you is going to have your name on and which of them, because if you were a single parent, you could adopt. Right. Right. Who's going to have their name on it? And, you know, Aaron, it goes to what you were just saying about these are really very personal moments. If you're up in the stratosphere, doesn't seem like a big deal. Right. Because you're still adopting. It's just whether there's one name on the piece of paper or two names on the paper. You're still adopting. It's not that big deal. But this this attorney who's in the trenches all the time knows what a devastate. First of all, what a personally devastating moment this is. When you get to that moment where you say, okay, one of your names is going to be on the whatever birth certificate, whatever it is, right? The other one is not. Or, right, you almost have a conflict of interest if you're helping them as a couple. Because if you're not the name on that piece of paper, you got no rights. And, the, and that's that would be the next step, right? What happens if the relationship ends and you exactly. are not on that birth certificate? Now you're having to make an argument that I have standing to seek custody. That analogy also just, it just made me think about how much that the you know LGBTQ community has had to work around constitutional rights. And in, you know, I'm not allowed to marry, but I can adopt my partner so that right. I pass away, they're able to have some inheritance rights. I mean, it's, those are the things that that have, in terms of the, the true in the trenches, trying to figure out how to make it work for your clients that we deal with these constitutional law issues. That's exactly right. You're the people who get it, right? Because you're in the trenches with the people. And and where this came, I mean, there was a, a lawyer in Pennsylvania who was sitting across the table from his client and he just said, no, we're putting both names on. If they don't like it, they can send it back, but we're going to try this. And that's where it came from is this, this lawyer saying we're writing both names on and we're going to send it in and see what happens. It's changing the vital statistics form to just read spouse instead of husband and wife and seeing if they'll accept it. <laughs> That's because you're in the trenches and you see the personal implications of the law, right? And that's really, in, in, in setting up the program, and I really appreciate the fact that Liz and the committee were willing to, to let me be a part of what they're doing because I think they're just doing a great thing. But yeah, I mean, the people who are in the trenches we need to have a voice in the conversation because we under, we're doing this every day and we see the implications it's having on people's lives. And that's what the Constitution's supposed to do, is it's supposed to help people to form a more productive life, a better life, a happier life. And so the people who really understand how the game is played 
need to have a voice in that process. I think that's an excellent way to conclude. Thank you to you both for participating in this today. Thank you for the, the conversation. I hope everyone that gets an opportunity to listen to this will go and see you guys live and in person in Hershey in a few weeks. And uh, feel free to check out the show notes. We'll have information about what we talked about today. We'll have information about registering for the for the winter meetings. And thank you guys again. I look forward to seeing you in Hershey. You and as well. Work hard and be nice to people, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially, especially it's a good message, I think, for the holiday season. So that's right. All the time, but definitely this weekend. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you. Both. Have a good one. Bye. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash lawinthefamily. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.